you have your Bibles, would you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6? I love when we see that go up. There's no better picture that can be standing behind me than the picture of Jesus. So, uh, 1 Timothy. Chapter 6. You know, the Bible is a book. It's made up of a number of books, 66 in all. And really for us as Christians, the Bible is our owner's manual. I don't know, but if you're like I am, you probably very rarely pull the owner's manual out of your vehicle glove compartment. I'll be honest, when something goes wrong with my car, the first thing I do is call Sean Hamilton. The second thing I would do is look at uh, the owner's manual. But we probably all ought to be familiar with our manual so when something happens, we're not in a reactive mode. As we look at God's word, it is the believer's own owner's manual. And it is, as I said, 66 books that come together under one. And there are certain areas, just as would be in an owner's manual, where you can find answers to certain things. For instance, the Old Testament law you see God's standard for man. You see what God expects of man and um, how man, we understand, is a sinner through the law. Through the Old Testament narratives, we learn the consequences of righteousness and unrighteousness and the results that come from those. The Gospels give us teachings about the life of the Lord Jesus. So if somebody said, I want to know about Jesus, we can tell them turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And then in the book of Acts, we can understand the work of the Holy Spirit after Jesus left this earth. We can understand how the church began. And then as I have shared in the past couple of weeks in Second Peter 2 and Jude, there are specific parts of God's word that we can look at that help us to detect false teachings. But among all of these sacred portions of scripture lies 1 Timothy. We've been looking at it. I guess this is three months that we've been looking at it. And as we look at it, if I could sort of summarize why 1 Timothy was written, it is really an instruction manual for the ministry and the operation of the local church. It shows us really how to do church. With that in mind, would you look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 1 through 10. All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their servants are believers and dearly loved. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. For these come from envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, 
and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that you would speak to our hearts about what it means, Lord, to conduct ourselves as Christians in this world in which we live, that we would understand, Lord, how to be alert to the threats of false teaching that you say will become more and more prevalent as the second coming of Christ approaches. Father, we thank you for this book that we have studied, and as we come to this second-to-last message, I pray that we would store up in our minds and hearts the truth of this word and refer back to it, Lord, for instruction in the local church. And I lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we have really a twofold look in keeping with our theme from the past two weeks. We're going to look at a group in the church. Remember two weeks ago we looked at the subject of widows and how the church was to look after widows, but the primary responsibility was the immediate family. Last week we looked at the subject of elders and pastors. What is considered to be the responsibility of the elders in the church? How is the church to respond in the naming of elders and even in the case of disciplining the elders? Today we're we're looking at the subject of slaves that were in the church, and then after that we're going to return to the subject of false teachers. Today, as we look at, we're going to see first that he addresses the issue of slavery here. And I'll be honest, as we look at it, one of the first questions we might have, why did Paul here not condemn the issue of slavery? Well, you know, as we look at it, I think that's a good question, but there's some things that we need to look at as we uh, study God's word today. Um, First, the slavery that existed in that day was not ethnically based, as we look at it. Uh, In fact, many times in uh, this particular context or culture, slavery existed because you had what was called indentured servitude. For instance, as you remember, the parable of the unmerciful servant, remember, went to the master, begged for forgiveness. The master forgave the debt, and then he went out, the one who was forgiven, and, and held the guy by the neck and said, pay me what you owe. That person actually was an indentured servant and basically an agreement that he would work out in an agreement toward actually working toward uh, freedom. Again, as we look at slavery in, in the biblical times, many times what happened is one people would overcome another people militarily and they would be placed in servitude. Any way we look at it as Christians, slavery is, is not a godly thing. There's no way, any time, any place that it can be considered right. And a, as we look at it um, contextually here, though the question, why didn't Paul directly just condemn the institution of slavery? Now, I'll, I'll add that many, God has used many Christian statesmen to address the issue. And, but that was not really Paul's purpose here. In fact, we uh, many times forget today that there's human trafficking going on even now. There's slavery in our nation now. We should be burdened about it. And really, as the church, we should speak against it of people being sold into sex slavery and things like that. 
But again, why did Paul not address it? Well, I think as we look at it, he was addressing it. But he may not have addressed it the way we wanted to, but it doesn't matter. He's, he's under the inspiration of God as he speaks about the is, uh, issue here. And notice what he says there. All who are under the yoke of slavery should regard their masters as worthy of all respect. And then he gives a purpose so that God's name and his teaching would not be blaspheme. In other words, Paul's primary focus here was not to address this social structure, but his primary focus here was to bring glory to God. So he says, slaves, instead of resisting against it, serve in such a way that God would be glorified. But there's another thing. God, uh, through Paul, was expressing an eternal perspective. You remember the uh, account of the rich man and Lazarus, a literal account. The rich man had everything, uh, Lazarus had nothing, but what happened in eternity was everything was turned around. The rich man was suffering in an agony in hell, and Lazarus himself was in Ab at Abraham's bosom and was enjoying, and actually the rich man envied what Lazarus had. You know, as we look at injustices in the world today, one thing, how I deal with it, I don't know how you deal with it, but we look at injustices, and I look and say, eternity's the great equalizer. Why, why does someone suffer? Why does someone go through uh, being in a, a subservient position in this world? Well, eternity is the great equalizer. But Paul, as we look at the issue, did address slavery. And he addressed it. I want to look at a couple of things. One, he addressed the issue personally. You remember in the uh, epistle uh, to Philemon, he was writing to his friend. As you remember, Philemon had a slave, Onesimus, who had run away. And, and Onesimus came to Paul, and he began to serve and minister to Paul uh, while Paul was limited in his mobility. But Paul realized Onesimus was Philemon's position. And so he told Onesimus to go back to Philemon. And with, with Onesimus, he sent a letter to Philemon. And he said this, receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. He, he really, he said, although I have the authority because I'm an apostle, I appeal to you in love. In other words, Paul wasn't calling Philemon to act under the compulsion of an external mandate. But he was saying, as a brother in the Lord, receive this individual back as a brother and not as a slave. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul's writing chapter 6 and verse 9, and he says, Masters, understand that even as your servant serves you, you're a servant of the Lord, and so you need to conduct yourselves in like way. And so I understand as my mentor in ministry, Dr. Tommy Lee, discussed as we studied this subject matter, he said basically as Paul and some of the New Testament writers began to address the institution of slavery in their context on the spirit and the principle of Christian love, the desire would be that it would basically dissolve, that, that the master would love the servant, that the servant would love the master, that there would be not Greek nor Jew, there would be not slave nor master, male nor female, but there would be a coming together. But we might ask, well, how does it apply in our context today? Well, first, as I said, I'm thankful slavery doesn't exist in these United States, but there are places in the world 
it, it had existed here, it doesn't now, but there are places in the world where slavery is existing even now. There's slavery even in the United States, as I said, sex trafficking, as I said, human trafficking, and people, young teenagers that are coming many times from countries that are impoverished, that are given promises, and then they become slaves to others. As the church, we need to address that. We need to be praying that uh, this darkness would be removed. But in our everyday life, where does it apply? Well, basically what Paul is addressing here applying today would be the employee to employer relationship. You know, many times as employees, we may feel, well, I'm just a pawn in this thing. I, I don't have any influence, but that's wrong. In fact, it's, it, Paul addressed the slaves here because they had a power to make an eternal difference. You know, we're living in a day today when people don't want to work. How many places do you ride? You can travel across state, you can travel interstate, and you see everybody's trying to hire. And there are people today that would say, I want more, I want more, I'm entitled, I, I need this, I, I need that. But you know, and you would agree, when you go into a place and you see somebody you realize is working as an hourly worker and you realize they may not be making much more uh, than minimum wage and they are working hard, you know what? It gets your attention, doesn't it? And I hope that you'll stop and when you see somebody like that working, whether it be at a fast food place and you see it, you ought to call, you ought to call them in a positive way and say, I appreciate your work ethic. And so it's saying there, work in such a way that your masters will take note, that your testimony will not be affected. And we have to trust that God's going to work in the heart of a Christian employer. Notice what it says there, that, that you ought to, for the believing master, even work harder because the one you're serving believes and loves the Lord. And so for the employer, even though it's not spoken directly here, it's understood that believing um, bosses should treat their employees the best. They should treat their employees the best. They should look out for them. They should be concerned. They shouldn't withhold from them what is right. And so Paul addresses that in an indirect way, that the employers have a responsibility. So what does God have to say to employees today work hard under the hand of those who oversee you second your work is a testimony of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ third if you have a Christian boss work even harder because the one you serve knows the Lord and so Paul is speaking about the power that we have when we're under someone the power that we have to have an impact of someone and the world will say, no, you're just a pawn here. You're just an employee here. No, God can use you in a great way. Do you oversee people? You better respect people. You better respect their work. You better affirm that work because it's amazing what can be done w when that's um, issued. Well, secondly, Paul revisits the subject of false teachers, and we see this in verses 3 through 10. Now, as we look at it, 
I remind you of the two chapters that I challenged a couple of weeks ago, Second Peter chapter 2 and the tiny book of Jude that is right before Revelation. These are important books, and I'll show you a moment the benefit of studying those books, but there are also places like here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that address the issue of false teaching. In fact, the Bible is filled with instruction that helps us to understand. In the Old Testament, you had the false magicians who tried to replicate what Moses did with the ten plagues. In the days of Jeremiah, there was a prophet named Hananiah. He was a false prophet, a false teacher. He was the one you may remember as described in Jeremiah chapter 28. He put a wooden yoke in his assembly, broke it, and he said within two years you're going to be out from under um, the exile in Babylon and free to go back. What did God tell um, Jeremiah to do? He said, get an iron yoke and put it around your neck because it will not be broken. You'll be 70 years in the land. Hananiah was an Old Testament example of a false prophet or a false teacher. In the New Testament, Jesus warned of wolves that were in sheep's clothing. Jude, as I said, describes as them as shepherds who look out only for themselves, not serving out of love for God in a real ministry to the people, but trying to gain personal benefit. That's in Jude 12. The profile is long, the information is long, but here there are basically four things that characterized the false teachers in Ephesus in Timothy's day. And the first was this, they simply taught wrong doctrine. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. In other words, these individuals, their teaching was wrong. Jesus said you will know false teachers by their fruit and there are two ways you would know it through one their lifestyle is their lifestyle consistent with a lifestyle of a believer Two, their teaching is their teaching consistent with sound doctrine there were those in Ephesus here their teaching was not consistent in fact they were teaching literally differently differently from the true teachings about Jesus but it wasn't just different it was damaging in fact it says that they were opposed to the true teaching does not agree with means it basically it does not consent to the true teaching of the gospel that word for sound that may be used in your translation is the Greek word from which we get our English hygiene which speaks to health and so the teaching was not only wrong, it was unhealthy and damaging spiritually. Listen, when you turn the television on or when you attend church or wherever you might be, always measure the truth. Know what is being taught. Just because someone may have a flair, just because someone may have uh, an outgoing personality, just because someone shouts or just because someone is very quiet know the substance of the teaching the Holy Spirit will guide us in discerning is this sound teaching does it point to Jesus does it lead to a more godly living and so Paul was warning about those who simply taught wrong doctrine but also 
they were arrogantly ignorant. It says, verse 4, he is conceited and understands nothing. You know, there are a lot of bad combinations. Um, Gas and fire is one. Drinking and driving. A bull in a china shop. Banana and ketchup. They don't (laughs) seem to go together. A fool who's conceited is a bad combination. Paul warns of those who present themselves to be spiritual, yet at the same time, they're ignorant. It says that that he is conceited and understands nothing. We, We get the understands nothing. We've heard a lot of people blow air and talk about things they don't know anything about. But what about the conceited part? Whenever you listen to a representative of the gospel, and I'm not saying he's not bold, he doesn't stand with conviction, but his personal life should be marked by humble service, a servant's heart. There's not enough room for God's glory if the pride of an individual steals it. In fact, our example is the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do right before he died? He got on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. So if you ever see someone and they're speaking the word of God and you're thinking that's the most arrogant, conceited person. Again, I'm not talking about bold or unction. You know the difference. Then you have to say something's not registering here. And, and, and so that marked him. But, but third, they were divisive. But he has an unhealthy interest. Again, that idea of health in disputes and arguments over words. They, from these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. In other words, they sow seeds of discord. They take orthodox teaching and try to bring doubt. And when that happens, our perceptors need to go up. They take the word of God, which is truth, and they try to twist it. They try to redefine words. They try to place doubt. And that's the spirit of their father. The devil said, did God really say? I shared a couple of weeks ago a book that I read uh, by a woman named Elisa Child. She sang in a group named Zoe Girl. But, you know, many of these groups, we think, how much depth do they have? Well, because of some experiences in her life, she became an apologist. An apologist is someone who studies intellectually the faith to defend the faith. And what led her to that was an influence early in her Christian experience of deconstructionism. Basically, a person that portrayed himself as being Christian, but then began to tear down essential doctrines, redefine words, redefine what hell was, redefine what salvation is. And and actually coming out of the class, she said it was more confusing than when I went into the class. In one chapter of the book, it's titled Fixing What Is Not Broken, and she shared how a progressive Christian was trying to redefine everything that Christianity was. Praise God, she realized it. And she realized the consternation, the confusion that was coming from such teaching. Jude 19 says that these ones create divisions, confusion, 
in their worldly, not having the spirit. They have an unhealthy interest, verse 4 says here in our text, over disputes, in, in, in arguments over words. One thing you need to be very careful whenever you hear people speak, when they use words, you need to understand how they define them. They may say salvation. We'll understand what do they mean. Do they mean salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? They may be talking about hell. Understand what they're saying. And if you don't understand, pray for discernment in it uh, because many of these teachers are divisive in nature. Avoid such people. But then the fourth thing, they are pulled by desire for material gain. Half of our text this morning speaks of the danger, not just of false teachers, but of everyone being pulled by the desire for material gain. I challenged, as I said a couple weeks ago there in Second Peter uh, 2 and, and Jude to look at the subject of false teaching. There's one Old Testament figure that's both in Second Peter 2 and in Jude that's important to understand, and that's Balaam. Both of those tiny books speak about Balaam. So as we read about Balaam, we need to understand what's the story about Balaam. Most of us know Balaam, at least I do. He was the one the donkey spoke to. Remember, he broke down and shut down and wouldn't move, and he beat him, and all of a sudden the donkey talked to him. I don't know about you. If I heard a donkey speak to me, I might just drop right there. But that's not the whole story. And later in the book of Numbers, chapter 31, and also in 2 Peter 2 in Jude, we see the rest of the story. You remember what happened. King Moab, King of, I mean, King Balak of Moab called Balaam in and said, I want you to curse the people of Israel. Remember, Balaam said, I can only do what God has called me to do. And then he went back and then Balak called him again, and remember, Balaam was struggling with God, and God allowed him to go and said, you only do what I tell you to do, and Balak called him again, and he said, I can only do what God has called me to do. And so we would say, boy, looking at it on the surface, Balaam seems to be a great guy. But if we stop right around Numbers 22 or 23 and don't read the rest of the story, then we become confused because a deeper look in Jude 11 says that false teachers fall into what? Balaam's error for profit. Now here's the rest of the story. For those of you who are older, you know Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. It didn't stop with him going back and forth to, to Balaam. But Numbers verse, chapter 31, verse 16, God is addressing the women of Midian that were conspired with the Moabites. And he said, you will be judged because you tempted the men of Israel at what? The advice of Balaam. Here's what Balaam did, and we can understand putting the piece together. Moab, uh, uh, Balak said, curse him. He said, I can't curse him. Moab said, I've got this money. If you'll just curse him, I'll do it. Then he called him back, curse him. He said, I can't do it. Balak said, I've got this money. But before long, the money influenced him. And guess what he did? He didn't, Balaam didn't issue the uh, judgment. 
or prophesy against them. But what he did, he said, guess what, Balaam? He said, if you go to them, I can't curse them. I can't do it. But if you go to them and you get the women to tempt them into sin and they commit idolatry, then they will bring a curse on himself. And he said, thank you, Balaam, Balak, and he stuck the money in his pocket. That's what happened. That's what happened. So if we stop with just the donkey, we missed the story. Numbers 31, 16 said that when it really got down to it, Balaam wanted the money so much that he sold out. Well, you say, well, he still did what he was a prophet. He didn't speak the word, but guess what? He didn't care about the flock. He didn't care about the flock. He cared about the money. Now, a false teacher cares about the money and not the flock. We need to be careful of that. So what does Paul say here in 1 Timothy chapter 6? That they imagined that godliness was a way to material gain. That's what he says. In other words, if you're righteous, you're going to get a lot of money. Now, how many people on TV do we see think that boy if you're if you'll give God this money he'll bless you he'll give you a hundred times more and there are missionaries that are struggling on the mission field and they're living in multi-million dollar mansions that's not of God like a Balaam not concerned over their flock we must beware of those who use religion for material gain let me put it this way Jesus didn't live in a mansion he had no place to lay his head. Well, while we're on the subject of false teaching, what about money as it relates to us? Paul gives an, a number of verses here that instruct us, and the first is this. As Christians, contentment is the real treasure we're to seek. Notice what he says in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We're not to always be striving to get more and more because that can lead to frustration. It can lead us to compromise our convictions. It can lead us to begin to serve things rather than God. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The second thing in verse 7, possessions, they are temporal in nature. He says in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. I had my little grandbaby visit song earlier this weekend. When she came to this world, she had nothing. Now, she has a little bit more now, but she did nothing to have any of that. And when we leave this world, we'll take nothing with us. I think, you know, some people for sentimental reasons may want to place something very expensive in somebody's box, but it's not going to do that person any good there. We've all heard there's not a U-Haul uh, in a uh, funeral procession. We all, all have heard that, but the truth of the matter is we take nothing into this world. We take nothing out of this world. You say, well, what's it all about? It's about the Lord. We stand before God one day. He's not going to wonder how large your bank account is. He's going to know what did you do with that bank account in serving the Lord. The third thing, we need to differentiate between our needs and our wants. We can be guilty of that, can't we? I might see that thing in somebody's yard and think, boy, I'd like to have that. And I start to think, how can I get that? How can I get that? And before long, it consumes all of my thoughts. 
But we need to understand the difference between needs and wants. Verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. In other words, what he's saying there, food and clothing are our necessities. Many young people uh, and old alike, but especially young people, they look maybe at what their parents worked for for years and they think, I want it and I want it now. It doesn't happen. And then fourth, prioritizing the acquisition of material things leads to many other sins and the consequences that come with it. Now verse 9 warns of the temptation of riches. Is it bad to have money? No, it isn't. It's not bad. Is it bad to have things? It's not. It's bad for things to have me. It's not necessarily bad for me to have things. But I'll be honest, one thing that I try to do when I look at something, is this something that really I have to have? Is this something, if, if I do have it and it's a pleasure, I need to realize it's a blessing from God, it's a pleasure, and it, and it actually is God. So if you know, I got, and I don't want a mobile home, but if I would receive a mobile home, I want you to come use it. I would let you use it. You can, you know, because I, if God gives it to me, I don't want it to be that way. That needs to be our attitude, even in the blessings, they're gifts from God. But there's a danger when money becomes the focus because it leads to foolish things, harmful things that plunge us into ruin. And then verse 10. One of the most misquoted verses ever in the history of the Bible is verse 10. People say, money is the root of all evil. And when I hear it, I correct them. They say, well, money is the root of all evil. And I say, well, even that's not exactly right. Money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of evil all kinds so it's not money is evil money is neutral money's like the internet isn't it you can use the internet for good or you can use it for bad and, and what we desire to do is to use it for good money is the same way money can be used to advance God's causes money can be used to bring glory to God or money can become a consumption of people and lead them to act foolishly and harmfully toward themselves and toward others so money is not a root of all evil but it the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil it can lead to pride you ever look down on somebody because they don't have much that's a sin James tells us you ever look at an hourly worker and mistreat them my sons and my youngest sons an hourly worker people went in were making fun of him, saying he ought to go work at McDonald's or whatever because he was working an hourly job. And I told him, you work the job, you work the job. Nobody judges except God, the value of it. When you go in a restaurant, when you go and, you, and somebody's waiting on you, you, you treat them with respect, no matter what position they have. That's what God's word teaches. Money is a wonderful thing to have, but money does not equate spirituality. Some of the most godly people left this earth with very little. A wrong attitude toward money can lead not only toward pride, it can lead toward greed, it can lead toward self-dependence, a sense of false security. 
The thing that threatened these false teachers can threaten us. So money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so we need to be alert to those things. You know, I was thinking this week, we're, we're getting ready to leave First Timothy. And I, I don't know if it spoke to you. I've enjoyed this study. I, I, I've put it in the memory bank as I've challenged you to do. There are times when I'll come back. There's so many issues, various uh, groups, ages, gender-wise, responsibilities of the church toward its leaders, the leaders toward the churches, responsibilities in ministry to those in need. All of these various areas teach us basically how to do church, how to do church. Next week, we'll conclude this study, and then uh, we'll be moving on to a different subject matter. But I wonder today, have you given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, to get everything right in your life, you first must be a believer. God wants you to have a right attitude toward money. He wants you to treat people rightly. If you're in a subservient position in the workplace, God wants you to have the right attitude to bring glory to him. But the only way you can do that if he is the Lord of your life. You know, the Bible says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And it's not this deal, well, we've all sinned, we're all alike, we're all okay. No, the Bible says that we all are corrupt. We all are, are dirty with sin. There's only one who ever walked the face of the earth who lived a perfect life and he died for you and he rose again. And you need to place him in the right position of your life. Submit to him and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I confess my sin to you. I believe in you. I believe you rose again and that you're coming back. Have you done that in your life? I pray you have. Maybe you've done that in your life, but you have sort of wandered away from God. He's not been your priority. Maybe material things and things like that and the pursuit of position have become more of your consumption. And you've not awakened in the morning and said, God, thank you for the position, for whatever you've given me. I want to glorify you in that today. Maybe today would be a day when you would reaffirm the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't know how God is speaking. I pray that he is today. Let's pray. Father, as we close this second to last message in 1 Timothy, we thank you for the instruction of your word. Lord, help us adjust our lives to your word, not seek to adjust your word to our lives. Father, I pray as we go through this week, if we are in a position under someone, that we would work that job, carry out that position in such a way to bring glory to you. Lord, I pray for those even in our nation now who are in servitude against their will, people taking advantage, taking for granted their lives, Lord, people for whom you died. And I pray, Lord, that the darkness would be exposed, that we as the church would be vigilant to pray that this that's going on in so many cities would be brought to an end. Lord, help us to be alert to those that would lurk about, whether it be on the televisions or wherever, that are presenting not the true gospel but a false representation. 
help us to know the fruit, the life, the, the conduct, the, the teaching. Father, we love you, and I lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God leads this prayer.